0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Edward Abbey, who died at the age of 62 in 1989, was a novelist, short story writer, and nonfiction essayist who is now known as the father of the radical environmentalist movement and one of the great voices of America's unfettered West. Through his novels and his essays and journals, he argued in defense of the wilderness and personal freedom against government and corporate forces that would inhibit both. As noted environmental writer and poet Terry Tempest Williams says in her latest collection of essays, Edward Abbey taught the movement the difference between anger and rage. As she quotes, "'Anger, I'm foaming at the typewriter again.' But of the seven deadly sins, wrath is the healthiest, next only to lust. Action, that's a thing. I like to go climb a rock, pull down a billboard, disable a bulldozer, climb a mountain. Be true to the earth, says Nietzsche. Hike that. There are nine novels, a book of poetry, 14 collections of essays and journals, three omnibus works, and two books of letters. One book became a classic film, Lonely of the Brave, and another a less-than-successful TV film. Early in his career, after having published three novels to little effect, Edward Abbey's publisher suggested an essay collection. Thus came, in 1965, Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness, and Modern Radical Environmentalism was born. Ten years later came his best-known work, The Monkey Wrench Gang, a comic novel that focuses on sabotage in the name of environmentalism. It has obviously never become a film. In 1985, the novel was reissued as a hardback featuring illustrations by R. Crumb. Edward Abbey died four years later at the age of 62 of complications from surgery. This program is taken from an interview conducted on his book tour for the Monkey Wrench Gang reissue in July 1985, conducted by myself and Lawrence Davidson. Ed insisted we interview him over lunch at an outdoor cafe in the B&B where he was staying. Eventually, the ambient noise became too great, and we moved indoors. The sound quality precludes airing the entire interview, the contents of which have not been aired, since Abbey's death. Edward Paul Abbey was born on January 29, 1927, in a small town in Pennsylvania, his mother a schoolteacher, his father a political radical and atheist. In 1945, he was drafted into the military, but before he left, though, he traveled west and fell in love with the desert. As quoted in Wikipedia, he writes, Crags and pinnacles of naked rock, the dark cores of ancient volcanoes, a vast and silent emptiness smoldering with heat, color, and indecipherable significance, above which floated a small number of pure, clear, hard-edged clouds. For the first time, I felt I was getting close to the west of my deepest imaginings. When he received his discharge papers from the military, he sent them back with a note, returned to sender, and the FBI opened a file on him, and then he went off to college.
1: Back in the 50s, I still had academic ambitions, academic pretensions. I thought I could become a professor of philosophy. I don't understand now, but I was only a kid then. Yeah, I spent a year at Edinburgh University in Scotland. I was in the early 50s. Traveled all over Europe that year. It was my second visit to Europe. I'd also been in Europe in 45 and 46 with the U.S. Army, Italy. That was probably the best part of my education. When I came back to the States in the early 50s, and I've lived in the southwest, mainly Utah and Arizona, most of the time ever since, except for about a year and a half in Hoboken, New York City. I discovered that I could make a living by working five to six months a year for the Park Service and or the Forest Service. That's what is called a seasonal ranger. As you probably know that National parks get most of their visitation at certain seasons, usually like spring, summer, fall. So the Park Service hires a lot of extra people for that uh, summer season. They'll employ you for five or six months, and then you're laid off, and you have all winter free to do whatever you like. I discovered that I could survive working for the Park Service or Forest Service five or six months a year, and then just moving off savings or unemployment insurance if necessary through the winter. I wandered around a lot. In those years, all over the West, I figured it out once, I worked in about 16 different national parks and national monuments or national forests over a period of about 20 years. But it was an ideal way of life for a writer, traveling, the ample free time, and the minimum but adequate financial security. In the 50s and 60s, it was easy to get a seasonal job. Not many people knew about it. Easy work, lots of free time.
0: Edward Abbey's official webpage generates random quotes. Here's one. Writers should avoid the academy. When a writer begins to accept pay for talking about words, we know what he will produce soon. Nothing but words. And here's another. In order to write a book, it is necessary to sit down or stand up. And write. Therein lies the difficulty.
1: I think I was always some kind of a writer from childhood on—poetry, short stories, drawing. I used to make comic books when I was a kid, like Art Crumb. I liked his talent, persistence. By the time I got to college, I discovered that I had a facility for putting words down on paper. I soon learned to buffalo all my way through most of the classes by writing term papers. That's when my creative writing began. I had a few short stories published in little literary journals in the early 50s. I had a very bad novel published in 54. Dodd Mead and Company in New York, legitimate publisher in advance of $500. It's now totally extinct. Few uh, careless publishers suggested we had to reprint it in some cheap paperback form, but that's one book of mine I will not allow to be reprinted. It's very bad. I don't know why Dodd-Meade published it in the first place. In
0: 1956, while working as a seasonal park ranger at Arches National Monument, which is now a national park in Utah, Edward Abbey's novel, The Brave Cowboy, was published. It was the story of an iconoclastic ranch hand, Jack Burns, an old-time cowboy who refused to adapt to the modern world, and had put Edward Abbey on the map.
1: Yeah, that book I'm, I still like, I'm still fond of it. I consider it my first real novel. After I uh, began living in the Southwest, I met a lot of old-time cowboys and some young-time cowboys, and a lot of characters who were still trying to live a 19th-century life in 1950s America, and the contrast between their aspirations and their romantic nostalgia for a century before gave me the idea for that novel. Cowboy out of the 1880s and suddenly dropped him in Albuquerque in 1955.
0: Six years after publication, The Brave Cowboy was adapted into a film starring Kirk Douglas as Jack Burns and featured early performances by Jenna Rowlands and Walter Matthau. Wikipedia notes that Kirk Douglas wanted to release the film in art houses But Universal decided to open it as a mass-market Western. Over the years, the film has come to be recognized as a classic.
1: Kirk Douglas had read the paperback reprint of the novel. Somebody showed it to him, He liked it. He contacted the publisher. I didn't even have an agent in those days. The publishers uh, sold it to uh, Douglas for 7,500 bucks flat. That's all I ever got out of it. But it was a lot of money in those days, to me. $7,500 $7,500 $5, all in one piece of paper. I was quite impressed. I thought the film of Brave Cowboy was pretty well done. Only of the brave. Dalton Trumbo wrote the screenplay. I think Kirk Douglas did the best acting job of his whole career in that movie. I guess he thinks so too. That was a good film, I think. It streamlined the book. Trumbo deleted all the long-winded philosophical exercises by time in the jail cells. The film does retain a couple of the more far-fetched episodes from the novel, which still embarrass me a little. But on the whole, I think it's a good film. I can still view it with pleasure. I do still get some income from that movie. I had a big part in it. I was one of the sheriff's deputies scrambling around in the hills. Every year I get a check for about $5.50, a minimal residual.
0: In the mid-1960s, with his career as a novelist stalled or maybe even in freefall, Edward Abbey moved to the New York region to Hoboken, New Jersey, and took on a variety of jobs. Later, essays about his life during that period would surface in his nonfiction. I lived in Hoboken
1: for about a year and a half condemned tenement, belonging to my father-in-law, a famous slumlord in northern New Jersey. I used to help him collect the rents. I was his bodyguard. My wife and I got to live rent-free. It was a nice location. We were just one block from the waterfront where Marlon Brando once stalked. Had a great view of Manhattan. I was a welfare worker in those days. Lower depths of American life. Jersey City, Hoboken. And for a while, I worked for New York City what they called a social investigator. My territory was in Brooklyn. Railroad Avenue, Atlantic Avenue, toughest slums. But this was back in the mid-60s, before things really became rough. I was often walking up and down the streets there on my beat, looking for my clients. I was terribly homesick all the time I lived there. By that time, I was definitely a Westerner. I felt isolated, far from my native habitat. But Hoboken and New York had had their peculiar
0: fascinations for me. If I'd had guts enough to stay there, I think I could have become the Dostoevsky of northern New Jersey. But I missed the West too much, so after a year and a half, I split. According to Wikipedia, during the mid-1950s, the period at Arches National Monument, Edward Abbey was busy taking notes, making sketches... Writing journal entries about the West, about politics, about the plight of Native Americans, about the dams, about life as a park ranger, and more. By the late 1960s, he'd accumulated enough essays to be published in several books, and thus the origin of Desert Solitaire and his work as a nonfiction writer.
1: I published those two novels in the 50s, and then uh, I wrote two or three more novels, which were all rejected by the New York publishers. First thought me turned turn them down, and half a dozen other publishers. I was getting a little discouraged then, thinking of various modes of suicide, going through a couple of divorces. I had lunch with a publisher's editor in New York, and this editor had just turned down my latest effort in the novel. But he invited me to lunch to talk about it. He was going to let me down easy and how we were there. I talked about my life as a park ranger at West. and He said, why don't you write a book about that? Well, i have been keeping a journal for all those years. I simply transcribed a book, which I called Desert Solitaire, published. And suddenly, I found myself labeled as a nature writer. I've been stuck with that label ever since. And that book uh, didn't sell very well, but it got some friendly reviews. And then New York Times, and magazine editors, who had, and then began asking me to write about this.
0: Here's a great quote. A man could be a lover and defender of wilderness without ever in his lifetime leaving the boundaries of asphalt, power lines, and right-angled surfaces. We need wilderness whether or not we ever set foot in it. We need a refuge even though we may never need to go there. I may never get there. We need the possibility of escape as surely as we need hope. Without it, the life of the cities would drive all men into crime or drugs or psychoanalysis. With the publication of Desert Solitaire, Edward Abbey's career as a non-fiction writer took off, and before he died, 11 more non-fiction books had been published.
1: I was asked to write the book which became Desert Solitaire. I suddenly became an instant expert on the American West and environmentalism, Indians, cowboys, rocks, bushes. I got sidetracked into writing about that kind of thing. My first intention was to become a writer of great novels. It's still my ambition. But I discovered that you can do very fine things in the essay form, too. And I'm very proud of some of the essays I've written scattered
0: here and there through a number of books beginning in desert solitaire three or four later books there's a, a quote i don't know maybe apocryphal that someone asked you why you threw beer cans out of a pickup truck and you said it's because beer cans are beautiful and highways are ugly <laughs> is this true yes
1: i felt that the paved highway the places that i love was the real uh, and shitting a few beer cans along the shoulder of these paved highways certainly wasn't doing any aesthetic damage to the landscape. and also had a practical function of uh, making it easy for those aluminum beer cans to be picked up by hungry kids and old folks trying to supplement their social security pensions. I still urge everybody to drop their beer cans along the highways. But I'm still in favor of cutting down billboards when and where you can. They've made it pretty tough on us, you know, but putting them up on steel beams these days permanent. Well, I guess you need something like a long-range uh, spray paint can,
0: an aerosol
1: can about as big as a 50 gallon aerosol can with a high-pressure nozzle on
0: You're listening to a program about the late Edward Abbey using excerpts from an interview conducted in July 1985 in Berkeley using budget cassette tape and a second-rate portable recorder recorded in public spaces with a second-rate microphone held too far away from the author. Here's another randomly generated quote from Edward Abbey. Damp, humid green all over the place. Gives the country an unhealthy look. I guess I really am a desert rat. The sound of all those verdant, leafy things breathing and sweating and photosynthesizing around me all the time makes me nervous. Trees, I believe in the order of my prejudice, like men, should be well spaced off from one another, not more than one to a square mile. Space and scarcity give us dignity, and liberty, and thereby beauty. Edward Abbey also had a thing about dams. He hated them.
1: I sort of like Hoover Dam, Art Deco style of dam. It's a beautiful old dam. Probably seemed worth doing any time. Most later dams have been atrocities, yeah. unnecessary, very destructive, and should be removed. Dams are really a cruel imposition on nature. I not mean, think dams are worse than clear-cutting or strip-mining. In
0: 1975 came the Monkey Wrench Gang, a comedy and echo thriller. Some would even say that it felt like a cartoon. I was an R. Crumb fan at the time, but of course never dreamed that I wrote that book that Crumb would someday illustrate the characters have a cartoon-like quality. They're greatly oversimplified human beings. They were meant to be comical. I had a great, good time in the writing of
1: it, laughing all the way through about 700 pages, wondering how I was going to end myself. That's what kept me going. I got to within 50 pages of the actual ending of the first draft of the manuscript before I... Decided myself, or rather, discovered how it was going to end. Up. I had such a good time in the writing of it that I assumed it would be a popular book that people would enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. I never anticipated it someday would be illustrated by Ernst. <laughs> but uh, I'm delighted that it has been, and I think his pictures, his drawings, are a perfect complement. And we had to approach Crumb, the publisher started talking about doing an illustrated edition, we both thought of R. Crumb right away. And uh, Ken Sanders, the publisher, wrote to um, Crumb. Crum had not read the book and didn't want to do the project because he was busy with something else. But then maybe six months or a year later, somebody persuaded him to look into the book. I guess he liked it, and he agreed to do illustrations.
0: I heard something about it being a, becoming a movie. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that book has been under option to Hollywood ever since it was printed, published back in 75. I've been largely living off these annual options ever since. And there have been three or four or half a dozen screenplays written, and many actors and directors approached considerable interest in it, but never enough to put what they call the whole package together. Apparently, getting a film made these days is like running a terrific obstacle course. Eventually, you have to get it through a committee of the big money man. They look at this screenplay and say, my God, you want us to finance a movie about the destruction of property? We have another chainsaw massacre of teenage girls instead. I think most of the novels I've written do have a cinematic quality about them because I have a very visual outlook on life myself. But none of them were written with the conscious intent of making them into movies. And I've always been a fan of movies. I've loved movies ever since I was a kid. No doubt I was greatly influenced by seeing so many movies. It had something to do with the way I write.
0: Have you seen the new westerns that have come out?
1: I'm looking forward to seeing Silverado. That sounds like a good one. I guess I'll go see Eastwood's Pale Rider. I've never seen a western movie that I did not enjoy. Even if the story was stupid and the acting was bad, you had that wonderful scenery to look at. I always enjoyed it, trying to identify places. Hey, where were they? Where was this incident filmed? Then you discovered that some story is supposed to take place in a period of 24 hours, filmed from the Grand Tetons of Wyoming to the Mojave Desert of Southern California, but that's part of the fun of it. It must be great fun. I would like to get involved in it someday. I have recently been invited to tinker with the latest screenplay of Monkey Ranch Gang. I'm going to give that a shot. I do not have any experience writing a screenplay, and I don't know how it's done, but I'm going to read uh, the latest version of Monkey Ridge Gang and see what I can make of it, change it, improve it in some way to make it saleable to the moguls, moguls, moguls.
0: Edward Abbey's science fiction novel, Good News, published in 1980, features a post-apocalyptic world in which a would-be dictator is using Phoenix as his base of operations. Abby doesn't say exactly why the economy and government have collapsed, but he makes it clear it was not a nuclear disaster.
1: Yeah, I was quite deliberately and consciously vague about that because I was not trying to describe the survivors of a nuclear holocaust. It seems doubtful that there would be any survivors. The situation would, would have been so much worse than what I was trying to describe. So I just hinted at the many little wars around the globe and some sort of economic collapse so that the industrial system failed. But I had to be vague about that in order to create plausible situations.
0: Do you see that as happening?
1: In my more optimistic hours, yes, that's the way I would like to see our civilization collapse. A uh, breakdown of the industrial system, not with nuclear war, which is just too hideous to bear thinking
0: about. Edward Abbey's last novel, The Fool's Progress, is about a man on a road trip to discover America and himself. It was the last novel published during Edward Abbey's lifetime. Hey, Duke Lives, a sequel to Monkey Wrench Gang, was published posthumously in 1990.
1: And we're going to know about halfway through page 904, last time I looked. It'll be condensed later, don't worry. Almost everything I've written was originally twice as long as it finally appeared in print. I write in great haste and very carelessly, or no, I should say recklessly, just throwing in everything that pops into my head. The old kitchen stove technique. Throw in everything except the kitchen stove and then add that. Do the whole first draft from beginning to end without pausing, without looking back, without hesitating. Rush through it, whether it takes one 24 hours to do a magazine article or a year or two to do a novel go straight through and then let it simmer in my head and soul for a few days or weeks and then go back and start all over again from the beginning and start throwing out stuff, you know, write in longhand first and then I type it up. I have a vague outline in my head what I'm trying to say, usually some central theme or idea, polemic or complaint in my mind. I start on that, characters appear begin to develop. At least I hope they do. And it it's a kind of growth, like a tumor, a weed, if you're lucky, produce a flower.
0: Another randomly generated quote. Growth for the sake of growth is a cancerous madness. That Phoenix and Albuquerque will not be better cities to live in when their populations are doubled again and again. They would never understand that an economic system which can only expand or expire must be false to all that is human. Fifteen years before he died, Edward Abbey told Jack Leffler, who would later become his biographer, Do you solemnly vow that if I am about to die, you will make sure that I will not die in a hospital, and you will take me out into the desert? So at the end, Leffler, with the assistance of three friends and a couple of cases of beer, took Edward Abbey in a blue sleeping bag surrounded by dry ice into the desert. Many of Edward Abbey's books are still in print and available. The film Lonely or the Brave is available for streaming via YouTube. A DVD of the made-for-TV film Fire on the Mountain with Ron Howard and Buddy Ebsen is available via Amazon, though not Netflix. Wrenched, a documentary on the life of Edward Abbey, is available via the website at abbeyweb.net. Back at the Bed and Breakfast in July 1985, as I was setting up the recorder and Ed was ordering a beer, he and Lawrence Davidson talked about Western writers and their mutual love for the genre. And then Lawrence asked him, when you first came out West, was it love at first sight? Did you just get a feeling that this was the place where you wanted to spend your time?
1: Yes, it certainly was love at first sight. In fact, I might almost say it was love before I even saw the West. We were talking about old Western writers before this began. I mentioned Zane Grey. As a kid back in Pennsylvania, I read a lot of Zane Grey novels. And of course, I saw a lot of Western movies. So I fell in love with the American West before I ever saw it.
0: To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.